Welcome to the first ever podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Balm. I wanted to say a quick thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're only on episode seven, but the response so far has been super overwhelming. And I just want to let everyone know that I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's not lost on me in, at all uh, that there's a million distractions in the world to partake in. So letting me be just one of them, very kind. My guest today is Madeline Horwath, who is a cartoonist for The New Yorker. I personally have always been really amazed by the satirical cartoonist, um, their ability to tell an entire story in one image and a single caption, and not only have the reader understand it, but to connect to it and find the humor. Madeline is absolutely killer at this. I shared one of their cartoons on my Instagram stories, and they responded, and we had a mutual excitement and respect for each other's art, which was extremely flattering. So I invited them on the show, and uh, the conversation was equally hilarious and insightful. Um, they're my first cartoonist. Uh, I said I want to explore every different kind of art form, so um, I'm super excited to, uh, to have Madeline. So I hope you enjoy. This is the first ever podcast. Madeline, thank you so much for doing this. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you're, uh, thank you're my you. first oh yeah you're my first cartoonist and also my first guest born out of a dm predicated upon mutual respect for each other's art <laughs> so, <Yeah>. thanks, <laughs> so god. thanks for I that just, oh my god i'm just so happy i respond to all dms now <laughs> <laughs> well i mean boredom will do that right oh god <laughs> you don't know the half of it or maybe you know all of it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's uh, this podcast is, is all about first experiences. So do you remember the first time you felt a connection to, I guess, satire in general? Yeah. Um, when I was 19, I decided I want to be funny. And so I just absorbed in everything that I enjoyed and... I think that was sort of the prime of or towards the end of uh, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart days. So really what I took in was satire. Um, yeah, that I I I missed Jon Stewart as a host of that show so much. I like I, you know, the, adapting to, to Trevor Noah took a little bit of time, but I always really liked Trevor Noah's delivery of things. And um, and he's brilliant, but I had such a love and connection to Jon Stewart. Like I relied on Jon Stewart to sort of just bring me out of a hole uh, almost every single day. Did you feel that same way? Oh my God. Yeah. We were all crazy about Jon Stewart and my family. So we frequently go to uh, the South Jersey shore for the summers where he's also staying. And even my mom was driving around trying to find him and would wait outside his vacation home. We loved him that much. She won't admit that she's in love with him, but Ellen, get real. Right. I think we could all admit that we're in love with him. I think that's fine. <laughs> you know, like he's also yeah. someone that just he just gets more handsome as he gets older, too. He's one of those. He's like a Clooney in that way where you're just like, oh, oh come on. Yeah. Come on. He's like a yeah. I've, I've always wanted a Jewish Paul Newman. I actually really like Trevor Noah, though. I think he's appropriate now that race is truly on the forefront of discussion in American news and worldwide news. And 
I think they made a good choice. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I don't think they're, I don't think there was another choice that, that they could have made that, you know, was more appropriate. I, I, he's, he's great. He had just, you know, it was such a, it was such a hard thing to, um, I guess to be accepted because Jon Stewart left such a, such a massive, you know, impact on everybody that filling those shoes, it's like, I, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't put that on anybody. That's such a, it's, those are some huge shoes to fill. So, um, yeah, he had a lot up against him, but you know, I, I feel like once he got his footing and you sort of understood his delivery and his humor in general, like you couldn't help but love him. You know, he's, he seems like the person you would just want to hang out with all the time if you had the opportunity. Yeah. I've, I've kind of come to get used to almost not being super attached to a particular person as part of an institution because it's just the change is always going to happen. They're always going to bring on someone new. And I'm just kind of I feel bad for people who are just doing their dreams and everyone's like, no, fuck them. Like, I know people who stopped watching Great British Bake Off because one of the judges left. And I'm like, it's they're still making like <laughs> ugly cakes. <laughs> I just love that show when they're like, oh, this cake is absolutely smashing in its uh, design. And it just looks like shit. That's I've never heard anyone. I mean, I'm, I've only heard of the show, but I, I love that someone would be so dedicated to the show that they'd stop watching due to a judge leaving. That's incredible. Yeah, she was not a good judge. She was like, matcha tastes grassy and I don't like spicy. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> what's the valuable input? OK, we're going to move on. This is getting toxic for me. Oh, we could we could, we could probably <laughs> just do this all day. Um, so yeah, judging by your, by just, you know, your obviously I, I don't, I don't know you very well, but judging by your Instagram bio, you've moved around a lot. So what's the timeline with that? Um, I was born and raised in Fairfax, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, DC. And I've then played a show I, there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at a, a record store. You might know it. Called, I think it was called records and it might be like records and tapes does that sound familiar it just closed down that is a oh, wow. mile from is a mile from my parents house it just closed down yeah that place was fantastic yeah and you you know you then have an image in your head of of obviously how tiny it is and how any man could possibly play inside that place i remember it was because there's like a table in the center of it so we had to like set up around the table um in like a really not convenient way but we made it work it was really fun that was like god maybe our first maybe our first tour 2009 or something damn that's yeah. a good spot oh so you so you grew up mostly in fairfax and then then where'd you go i then went to beloit college in beloit wisconsin where i got my uh bachelor's in arts and fine arts and then i went back to fairfax for a while worked in some like Retail jobs, uh, one internship, and then I shipped off to Tucson for a couple of years, worked in a movie theater, did another internship. It was great. And then moved here. What was the internship in Tucson? I worked for a fashion designer who is currently a favorite of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. 
They're always wearing her stuff. And we had to put together promotional baskets that would go on the show. Interesting. Okay. So if you got a bachelor's in art and then you moved to Tucson to do to to work for that company, what was the change there? Actually, I didn't move for the company. I was in a relationship and he was going for his master's at the University of Arizona and we broke up and I'm like, I still really like this city. And so I worked in the coolest art house theater, um, the Loft Cinema. Uh, Crispin Glover has received a lifetime ban from there for having a meltdown outside. <laughs> do, you, do you know the story? Please tell me you know the story. Oh, yeah, I do know the story. Um, he made a movie and made the premiere at the movie theater, but he decided that he wanted the day of the premiere to be like mid-afternoon on a Wednesday. Okay. And it's only old people that come to the theater around that time. And so he just starts, and no one wants to see a Crispin, no old person is going to go see a Crispin Glover experimental movie. So he just starts having this meltdown outside. He's yelling, I am an artist. And just having a freak out. <laughs> no, it's a cool theater. I got to meet so many, so many cool people there. I, I'm pretty positive I've been there. Um, it's, but I feel like it's prime for getting into Tucson early and wanting to go see a film. I think I saw the movie Hesher there. Well, we were on tour once, uh, or when that was out. Um, it's still there, correct? I, oh, yeah, be, it's right? Yeah, I imagine the move from um, what? So Fairfax, Wisconsin, Fairfax, then to hot ass Tucson had to have been a bit jarring. It was amazing, actually. Um, really, you liked it? I loved it. The DC summers are so moppy hot that the Tucson summers, where you will see the plastic lids of trash bins melt <laughs> i preferred those so once once you left tucson then you went to chicago yeah yeah i packed up my car my friend gabby and i drove from tucson to chicago okay and how and how have you liked it since like are, are you in love with the city did you fall in love with it right away <sighs> no i i i do like the midwest I just, I really, I'm not a Midwesterner at heart. I, there's like kind of a personality type there that I've, I've had to adjust to. And I like Chicago because I've made most of the like emotional and ma emotional maturing and fundamental internal changes here. So I think that's why I like it. Okay. So, uh, at what point, like, were you always interested in art or like, was there comics or cartoons that solidified it for you, like at a young age? Or how did how did art start coming into the focus? Like, I guess in terms of uh, cartoons. Well, I think it's just sort of an amalgamation of just how my parents raised me. They just always encouraged art in me, like, and they put me in art classes since I was like five i have no other life skills thanks to them i'm just really happy it worked out 
But uh, yeah, they they took me to art classes since we lived by the Smithsonian. My dad would take me to the art museums like every Sunday. They just really pushed art on me and like high art. The thing was with the cartooning, the stuff I actually like is trash. I like I really I mean, my I know. I think it all started with the cartooning is when my mom thought that we were at Blockbuster and my mom thought South Park was a kid's show because it had just come out and I was like six. And so she rented it for my brother and I, and that just, that did it. Like we saw that, yeah, we saw that art could be like, or cartoons and could be just raunchy and different and you know, it could go further than Ren and Stimpy in The Simpsons. It could, you could really push the envelope with it. And I learned that really early on by mistake. I think it was just sort of all of it. They had me explore the different basic mediums. So yeah, clay and ceramics and pottery and painting and pastels and drawing. And it was nice. I got to learn what I do like, like, Obviously, I love ink. That's what I do primarily. I learned that I do not like pastels. I don't really like watercolors. I love ceramics. So it was fun to explore what felt natural to me or what was a fun challenge. Do you remember the first time you were you found yourself like making a cartoon? Like was it or, you know, like drawing something like that? Was it soon after South Park, I guess? No, it was weird. So... In my mind, I knew the envelope could be pushed, but what I could make and what I was encouraged to make in my art classes was not necessarily that. I, I, I guess I kind of feel bad that, like, as a kid or and as a teen, I very much limited myself and what I could make or what I thought I could make. So I was really just trying to make stuff that was emotional and and expressionist so I think I got more into cartooning when I was in college and I just started reading comic books because I had to take a comics class early on and I just I really liked it I enjoyed where it could go and it was also near Chicago where comics here are huge it's alternative comic scene is massive it's some of the biggest, you know, Chris Ware is here and all these other people that I really admire. So I got that exposure when I went to college. So that's when I started actually making the comics and I made comic art my focus. It was when I graduated that I was like, I am never touching another fucking comic for the rest of my life. That is tedious. Sure. Was, uh, uh was like, because Second City is in Chicago, right? Does that yes. is that uh and did you have did was that anything you were ever interested in participating in or did you go to a lot of sh- shows there or did that did that become uh like a part of your life in any sort of way? I was actually thinking about this yesterday on my walk. Um I'm so sorry all my friends were in Second City and did IO which has closed and the annoyance, but yeah, when you're outside Chicago and you want to be funny in Chicago, 
and you don't really explore the scene, you know Second City, you know Io, you know Annoyance, and it's very easy just to get caught in the cycle of those money-making businesses. So I came here thinking, like, I would do that, and then realizing I don't have the money to do that. So I went and explored some of the more grungy DIY comedy shows here where I saw people you know, really doing some weird stuff and covering themselves in like ham, like, (laughs) (laughs) oh God, making like pube jackets. Like I, oh my God, some of the weirdest shit I've ever seen. It was new to me. And that's where I realized like, oh, not only can I see the envelope being pushed, like I saw in Southwark, I could possibly do that myself. And it felt great and very liberating because I always like the weird stuff that I assumed would make me isolated. So I isolated myself. So here's another fun thing about my mom. When I was a kid, she and my dad would buy me books on mummies and the dead. And they took me to see a live open heart surgery when I was like 10. Just out of so, out of nowhere? Or did you have interest in like in medicine? What What was the context for that? That's wild. It was take your child to work day. (laughs) 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 Okay. So I was never sensitive to the macabre. And then I realized, oh, I can put the macabre into performance and art and humor. And I'm seeing people do it. So what's stopping me? Mm. Okay. So did you start, so did you start doing open, like, I think it's not necessarily open. Was it like stand-up comedy or was it improv or what were you doing or what, or do you still do this? Don't do this. Oh God. I, now that I know I can be funny without being seen, I'm never going back. I, I would sign up for these DIY comedy shows that were in like Addicts, and I would make all these big props and put them together. My very first performance in Chicago, I put together a projection screen. I made it, or I put together a project, uh, a projection setup. I made a screen. I bought a projector, and it was how I miss all my family around the world or around the country, and I need to send gifts but I am kind of financially limited and all I can send them are these. And I just have this slideshow of these bloody toes that I sculpted myself and put in different sort of settings and for different occasions. Like I made a, a, a bolo tie out of a, a bloody toe that I quote unquote cut off. And that is just sort of what I started doing is just going around doing this presentation about severed toes that I would give to people. And that's how it started. Yeah. People called I, someone came up to me and called me toe girl and I felt famous. I, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was the first thing I did. I completely forgot about that, but I did the toe presentation. Did you, did you feel uh, like a sense of like, I don't know, like personal liberation going up there and doing that for the first time, like actually performing. Were you terrified? What was it like for you? Oh, I was mortified. I was so terrified. I have this 
fear of being on stage and performing that, I mean, I'm just, I'm sitting in my room being interviewed and there's a part of me that's still shaking. And that's what I would rely on the, the visuals to do the work for me. Cause I didn't want to do the talking. Mm, yeah. No, I understand that. Um, and I got, you know, I also applaud you. I, I had always dreamed of doing stand-up and you know it was one of those like lifelong bucket list sort of things and i uh are you familiar with the hard times um like the yes the uh, yes yeah yeah so the, so oh, it's great uh the hard times the one of the owners had hit me up just a couple of years ago and was like hey we're doing this you know we're doing the, we do these shows every week at uh this comic shop in in hollywood uh or every month like would you want to be a part of it and i was like well what's the context and he's like well you know, just, you're just, you know, if you don't have anything in mind, like we could just work you into a skit or something. It was like five or six comics and then you, and I was like, you know what? Like, yes, I'm going to do this. Like I've always wanted to try. And then, so I told him, I was like, you know what, let me try my hand at stand up. I guess like there's things I've always wanted to kind of try out or talk. And, and he agreed to it. He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? So then I get there and they're like, and he's like, okay, cool. Are you good to close? It's like, Oh no. <laughs> I was like, well, I do do I have to? And he was like, yeah, I think it'd be cool. Like I, he's like, I, I, you know, some of the people that are here certainly came out to probably see whatever you're going to do. And it certainly was not a big crowd. I would say if like, I'm being generous, there was probably like 20 people there. I was like, okay. But I, I, I mean, from all of the experiences that 20 I, is a Chicago 70 though. So by our standard, that's incredible. I was, I mean, yeah, I was, but I, I was about to say like the, being in a position where I've been lucky to play in front of all sorts of different crowds and all sorts of different sizes and everything like that. That's still to this day, the scariest 10 minutes. And I did 10 minutes and it was the scariest 10 minutes of my life, like getting up there. And also, it's horrible. Also the funniest thing, it was uh, the back of the room, the door, the back door was open, like leading to the alley. And I swear to God, you could hear crickets outside. And I was like, I went up on stage <laughs> I went up on stage and the first thing I said, I was like, can you just, before I start, just everyone noticed that there's actually the sound of what everyone's dream nightmare situation is of how bad this can oh go. Oh my God. So, uh, that, that is incredible. Yeah, it went, it went okay. And, and since then, like, uh, some friends, some friends and I have, have done like sort of, uh, um, just like storytelling shows, which I really enjoyed, but still, it's so terrifying. I mean, you're up there, you're alone, you're, you're combating silence and you're shaky. I, I understand all those feelings. So I applaud you for doing it. Um, did you continue doing it much longer? Yeah, I did. And it was going really well. Yeah. It's terrifying because there's the work you produce, but it was up. It's you're putting literally, you're putting yourself your thoughts, your life story, the essence of everything that is you in front of people to decide if they're willing and enthusiastic about paying attention to it. That is horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, so once you, so once you decided like, you know what, I, I, I enjoy making cartoons um what was your first experience dealing with a publication like how did that come into play okay well this is actually the stand-up and the comedy stuff should lead to it because it actually is kind of a it is kind of a story um 
So I was doing the performing and I was doing, I was actually doing pretty well. And considering I was new and I was getting on these shows and stuff. And then I just, I had a, I had a crash, an emotional, mental crash in the spiral. I was a producer of a show and it was a horrible year. I just was not a fit, but I wasn't willing to accept that I wasn't a fit and I didn't really click with the other producers. I like them. We just didn't click as co-producers. And they eventually messaged me one day and they just said, we can't have you anymore. This is not working and that felt worse than a firing because if you're getting like getting fired for a job that is it's always awful. I do always think that people should get everyone should get fired from something once just Definitely. to be humbled a bit. Totally. I think everybody should get fired once, at least once or maybe four times if you're a really good artist. <laughs> I So I got fired. This is my firing from this pre producer skit and that's just like a horrible horrible period afterwards where I just started drinking a lot and smoking a lot and at some point I realized this just had to stop so I took a year long break from any performing I took a year long break from alcohol and all this, and I decided just to focus on my regular life. And I was not doing any cartooning. I hadn't done cartooning since college. And that was maybe five years before. So I was actually doing temp work as a desk receptionist. And it was really easy work. I had to do... Um, like accounting work and I had to uh, process invoices and organize and just regular administrative work. And I would have this extra time and just sitting there, I couldn't be on my phone. So I would just get the notepads from work and out of the boredom, I just started making these cartoons and they, they look, they were very crude looking. I mean, this was like in a pink pen and I would post them on my Instagram and Facebook. I mean, you would see the modern luxury Chicago letterheads on these notepads in this pink pen. It, it, it really was crude looking. And someone pointed out like, oh, you should, this is like what New Yorker does. And I knew about New Yorker cartoons. I knew like it had this, legacy and I I knew it had like a picture I didn't realize you could only have like one line like as the caption I, I it I've seen them I but I just didn't realize like that's what they had and I started looking up New Yorker cartoons and I realized like oh maybe my stuff is pretty good maybe and I had a lot of very nice, encouraging friends. So I'm going to name some of them. Maya Davis, Paula Skaggs, my friend Skylar Higley, who is... I have to give him a shout-out because he's the funniest, most encouraging person. Super nice. I'm, you should have him on the show. He writes for The Onion. He's a writer for Conan. He's 
the funniest stand-up, truly a remarkable human. And they were very encouraging people. So I did my research of what they look for in New Yorker cartoons and like what they don't like and sort of the general vibe. So there's sort of a standard of what they do accept. And then there's some kinds of cartoons that they just, they won't take. They don't accept puns, poop jokes. Like don't make a joke about pronouns. It's not only is it me, but it's just like hack. Um, and then, so I became dedicated to this. And then I found the, this interview with the new humor editor, Emma, who's, said this time like when she'll see people in her office and it was like a small time slot on Tuesdays so I making these cartoons for like two months I bought a Spirit Airways ticket to New York for the day stood I stayed with a friend their building is in Manhattan and I was staying with my friend in North Bronx the literal northernmost part of New York And the plan was I would leave work for the airport right after work on Monday, have a change of clothes in there, then, yeah, fly to New York, hopefully get this meeting, then fly back the next day at, like, 5 a.m. and go straight to work, get in some new, uh, new change of clothes, and then just go back to the usual. And that's what I did. It was, it was very poetic almost where I just went to New York with just change the clothes on my, the clothes on my back and my portfolio. And it was, it was so, so scary. It was so scary. Oh my God. I, so how did it go? I, well, I was so nervous there was someone else who was waiting at the the entranceway at the World Trade Center who was, like, very mean demanding. She's like, I need to see Emma. Like, come on. And I just, like, I gave the security guards this look like, I'm not with this one. I'm not like her. So I think that endeared me to them. And so Emma came, and she walked by, and I was too nervous to get up, and a security guard smiled, and he was just like, get up. Come on. And he pointed Emma towards me and she's like, oh, okay, you can come up with me. She's really nice. And we're talking and her boyfriend's from, or I think he's her fiance now is from like neighboring towns. So we were chatting and it was so scary. So going to the office, I mean, there's your friends liking your stuff and you trust your friends inputs and you get validation from your friends. But then when there's someone who's the expert, who's, job and career is to manage the New Yorker cartoons themselves. That is the moment where I find out, okay, am I actually good at this? That's, that's really scary. And so we go into her office and she opens up my portfolio and she starts laughing. I'm like, whew, maybe she's just nice. And she goes through them and she says, well, your jokes are incredible. The art needs some work. She gave me her card, introduced me to her assistant, Colin, and then set me on my way and gave me some notes on the cartoons. And yeah, that was about a 15 minute meeting. 
as I left the meeting, or the meeting, I left the building, just euphoric, and I'm like, oh, that went so well. Oh, my God, it's going to happen. A bird shat on my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. So when you when someone says, you know, the art needs a little work, was there direction with that? Or because, I, I mean, I'm putting myself in your shoes where I would be like, oh, my God, I, like, what does that mean? What do I have to do? Like, uh, you know, like, what, what, what more can I do for this? I thought it was great. You know, I would, like, tear myself apart. Uh, I don't know. It, I have a feeling you and I have have this sort of tendency in common. What uh, what do you do with that information? I ask for specifics and follow ups and really show that I want to listen, that I'm listening and I care about what she has to say. Um, so I was doing a different art style because I was I was suppressing what I knew, which is, you know, using India ink and brushes and nibs and pens and pencils. And I saw everything was digital. So I tried doing the digital stuff, but I didn't want to pay for a program. So I was using like a free Photoshop program and a really old used Wacom tablet to try to make stuff in the style that I thought they were looking for. And it just wasn't me. And so that's, I think that's what she was sort of saying is that, this just sort of style, the cartooning, it just doesn't really, it's a little awkward. Um, the first cartoon I sold did have an improved version of that medium, the digital stuff. And then I kept submitting more and more. And she would always say like, almost, but no dice. And then one time she sent me this email. She's just like, Mal, I'm having a little trouble with this art style. Um, and this was months of not selling anything after my first one, I think like five. And that's that's the norm. So your first year as a cartoonist with them, which I just finished my first year, it's a gauntlet. It's tough. It's really tough. And... So I wasn't selling and I thought, you know, oh, I have it so bad because I didn't really know the other cartoons who would say like, you know, this is typical. And so when she said like, yeah, I'm just having trouble with this art style. So I decided to just try the inks, do that. And that really helped when I then sent the second one that got sold, which was much, much different. The contrast is striking between my first and second one. And the second one, I used to be on Tuesday and I got a confirmation, the okay on a Wednesday, which is not normal. You usually get them on a Friday. You have to wait till Friday to hear it. So that's when I knew I'm like, okay, I needed, that was a good decision to just go back to what I know. Does the joke come across if you were to explain what the cartoon was? Or is it just like, it, is, does it not work without the visual? What was, yeah. What, yeah, what was the first one you sold? The first one I sold wasn't even my favorite in the bunch, but that's also like, you have to expect that. It's just a waitress at a restaurant and she is saying, might I recommend one of our salads? They come with three of your companion's fries. Like, it's just like a date joke. <laughs> sure. The second one I much preferred. It was at a um, airport terminal with people waiting. And Napoleon is on his horse saying, when they announce boarding group three, we charge. <laughs> <clears throat> That's awesome. Do these things just come out of out of thin air for you? What's is there? Is it because uh, 
I have to imagine that being topical is tough because you're probably competing with all the other people that they have hired as cartoonists to sort of tackle the same issue. Do you find that uh, being a thing or do you are you trying to reach for for uh, more situational comedy that's not so newsworthy? I'm pretty bad at the newsworthy stuff. I because I just get too pissed off by the news to make it funny. Like I just I I've drawn Trump once for a cartoon. I'm like, okay, that is that was enough. I can't draw that again. Like right. I because I, I mean this is only coming from how I feel about my like me and what I put out. And when I try to do something with that, I just it doesn't feel right to me. So I have left the more topical stuff, the daily cartoons to people who are really on top of it. My friend Brendan Loper, he just makes so many daily cartoons that are topical and he's wonderful at it. I can't do that. It's it's not my strength. Maybe one day I can try to make it, but for the time being, I'm still trying to really get the ropes and shine in like what I can do at the moment. And then maybe I'll expand. Sure. Do you, has the pressure gotten easier for you? Like as time has gone on now that it's, now that you've been with them for a year, like is the pressure, you know, has it, has it lightened up a little bit or do you find your, is it like a, I need to sell this like paycheck to paycheck sort of, sort of issue that you are dealing with? It ebbs and flows. Um, you really you can put out really good stuff but you just can't control what they want to buy and some people will have good years like Alice Rosen has just been having like he's he's so funny and so nice and he has a dog and a daughter he's which is so relevant um he's been having a wonderful year and since uh, quarantine started, I've sold like three things. And to me, that's just, it feels like I'm doing poorly. So I think it gets easier in how you cope with it or how you deal with it or handle with the constant rejection because it is part of the game. You don't go in and saying, I've made it, I'm set. You go in and you're saying, all right, I am now qualified to go through the harder shits. Hmm. When you so when you work for the New Yorker, do you are you locked into a contract with them to where you can't uh, work for other you can't submit for other outlets? Is that a thing or how does that work? It is definitely not like what it used to be. Um, they've had in the past they had more hired cartoonists that are paid more regularly regularly to put out the work but now we freelance and I can I fortunate for that I I can make I can make uh work for other publications I'm working on a piece for the Chicago Reader and I I love them so I I know they have people who are like on staff like Roz Chast who's you know, I've done it for like 30 years, so she obviously deserves it. But it is not like that where I can only do New Yorker. If I'm making a gag cartoon that I want to be in the New Yorker, I cannot 
show it anywhere else. I can't post it online. I I can't have it published in another publication. If I'm making a New Yorker cartoon that I am submitting to them, I have to hold on to that and only they get to see it first. Got it. Okay. I'm familiar with you because, you know, someone shared one of your one of your cartoons and I loved it. And, you know, I was I, I became a fan instantly. And it's those moments in the day that I think we're all looking for where, you know, something is you know, take Instagram, for example, where we're, you know, we're looking at our phone for an unfortunate amount of hours every single day at this point, probably where, you, you know, you're you're scrolling past uh, important information, important information, sad information, sad information, important, important, sad, sad, important, sad. And then you come across something that is lighthearted or just gives you a moment of relief or just a, even if it's just a chuckle, you're so thankful for those moments. So I, to you say thank you for, for providing those because it is really important. Yeah. Comedy has always been very helpful for me when I've been sad about, I don't know, being rejected or like really anything. Laughing has always been there for me. So I just would hope that I can provide that for other people. That's all I want. Well, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, my God. Hearing that from you is, oh, my. Well, um, it's crazy. Oh, uh, well, well, I truly, truly, truly appreciate it. And seriously, thank you so much for your time. This was really fun. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Bye. Bye. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with your friends, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast page to help the show just kind of get more visible to other listeners. Uh, this is a new project, as I mentioned, so I'm really grateful to be able to share these conversations going forward. So anything you can do to help spread the word is a huge, huge help. Uh, thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much.